Hello and welcome to The Bunker, your need-to-know on news and politics five days a week. I'm Seth Tibble. One of the well-worn tropes of American politics is the idea of the evangelical right, the so-called moral majority backing the Republican Party on a range of Christian conservative issues and holding politicians to a series of religious purity tests. But these are strange times. The politician who dominates Republican politics today is Donald Trump. Biblical virtues like charity, patience, kindness and humility don't immediately come to mind with Trump. So how have so many evangelical Christians come to embrace Trumpism? Here to shed some light on this is award-winning journalist and best-selling author Tim Alberta. Tim's new book is The Kingdom, the Power and the Glory, American Evangelicals in an Age of Extremism. Welcome to The Bunker, Tim. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, Tim, this is a very deeply personal book. Perhaps you can maybe start us off on that fateful day in 2019 when you were at your father's funeral and there was a note that was given to you responding to something you'd said in the eulogy. That's right. My dad was an evangelical pastor. Uh, I grew up, literally grew up in the church, um, spent my entire life uh, in the church. That was our home, our community. And when my father passed, I had been working uh, at a reasonably high level in Washington journalism. I had just published a book about Donald Trump that was rather unflattering. And when I came home to Michigan for the funeral at the church where I spent most of my life, I had a lot of people at the wake confronting me, uh, wanting to argue about politics, wanting to argue about Trump, kind of pointing a finger in my face. And so when I made mention of that the next day in my eulogy at the funeral and sort of uh, issued a rebuke to some of these folks, just kind of saying, hey, you know, what are we doing here? Where are our priorities as believers? That didn't go over very well. And in fact, uh, later that day, after burying my father, I received a note from someone at the church who was a friend of his and who'd been a leader in the church for a long time and who'd known me since I was a child basically telling me what a disappointment I was and how I was uh, undermining God's ordained leader of this country, Donald Trump, and that I should be ashamed of myself. And I had known for a very long time that there was a serious crisis here in the American evangelical church, but I'd mostly chosen to ignore it. I think for the same reasons that many of us tend to ignore the problems in our own tribes, our own families, our own communities. But that was really the moment for me when it became clear that, that it was something I would need to address. And you write in the book that evangelicalism in America is most polarizing and least understood. Um, perhaps you could say a bit more about that. Well, I think that there is a caricature of the evangelical Trump-supporting flag-waving, you know, far-right Republican that isn't always rooted in reality. The fact is there are tens of millions of people in this country who self-identify as evangelical Christians. And while some of them surely are uh, sort of nakedly hypocritical, kind of almost vicious political animals and militant in their approach to the culture wars, um, that is representative of one end of the spectrum, certainly. But it is a vast spectrum. And at the other end, there are many evangelicals who either didn't vote for Trump uh, in 2016 or who did but felt absolutely nauseous about it and, and 
prayed for forgiveness immediately thereafter, but felt that sort of they had no choice because of the issue of abortion and because of some of the the stakes of that election. Uh, and, And these were people who I think really kept their integrity and their dignity intact while voting for Trump. So I I just think it's important to recognize that, Mm. you know, with such a large group of individuals, we're dealing with a whole host of different behaviors and motivations, and we should treat them as individuals. Yes. I mean, for example, if if we think of past examples, someone like Jimmy Carter comes to mind as mobilizing evangelicals for the Democrats in 76 and then losing them in a big way four years later. Um, Maybe you could say a bit more about evangelicals in politics in the US and, and how that's shifted over time. Well, you're right. And the Jimmy Carter example is a fascinating one because in many ways, Jimmy Carter was sort of the first evangelical president. Uh, He he described himself that way. He was a a very serious Christian, a Sunday school teacher, someone who was involved with the Southern Baptist Convention, which is the largest Protestant denomination in the United States. And Carter ultimately found himself in the crosshairs of the ascendant religious right in the 1970s, not because of anything heretical with his theology, but very simply because of his partisan politics being uh, unacceptable to many conservative evangelicals. And, And effectively, they didn't attack Jimmy Carter as a bad politician They didn't attack him as a bad president. They attacked him as a bad Christian. And there was really a fusion of conservative theology with conservative politics that began around that time of the Carter presidency in earnest that has grown into sort of the monster that we are dealing with today. Now, you're a political journalist by background, and you've covered the ins and outs of the Republican Party for over 15 years. You mentioned your last book was very much on the sort of rise of Trump. What is it about the GOP that has made them such a natural repository for so many evangelicals today? Well, to be honest, I think much of it has to do with the binary nature of American politics. Uh, we don't we don't deal in a in a parliamentary system here where where people feel the freedom to uh, sort of fracture uh, and 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 choose more specifically or, or tailor their political choices uh, more narrowly to to their own liking. So much of the marriage between the evangelical wing of the Christian church in America and the Republican Party was out of convenience. And for many years, it was sort of an uneasy alliance and kind of a shotgun marriage. What we see today is something slightly different, and I would argue something far more concerning, which is to say that for many evangelical Christians, there is a sense of like impending doom for America, that the barbarians are at the gates, that the culture has become hostile toward them, that the church is in the crosshairs of the government, and that they will be persecuted soon. And because of that, because, you know, drastic times call for drastic measures, they have been willing to turn to someone like Donald Trump and willing to embrace someone like Donald Trump, who they view as sort of the ultimate brawler, someone who, ironically, because he's not a Christian, is able to fight for them 
and able to conduct himself in ways that are not beholden to Christian virtues and Christian principles. And that is in many ways sort of the, the, the great irony of this moment of evangelicalism is that their leader is someone who is proudly not an evangelical and they're perfectly fine with it. Is that something you think that's grounded particularly in the evangelical um, trend or is it something that's in the Bible itself? I mean, what is it, you know, this idea of a, a brawler who's not actually a Christian who's fighting on behalf of Christians? It, it is most certainly not a, a biblical precept. Mm. Um, now, now, to be clear, many evangelicals argue that, well, throughout Scripture, God uses flawed characters to advance his own purposes, right? And that is certainly true. Um, I think observing that is one thing, but I think embracing and excusing and justifying and ultimately enabling Mm. the terrible, abusive, destructive behavior and rhetoric of someone like Donald Trump, who has revealed himself to be nothing less than a sociopathic character at this Mm. point, uh, th- there is no biblical grounds for that. And, 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 and anyone who argues that there is, isn't reading the same book that I am. I'd like to break down this sort of Trump relationship a bit more because it's, it's really fascinating because it does seem that there is certainly a transactional character to some of it. You know, the idea of you deliver for us, you deliver on, say, abortion reform for Republicans or for Christians, and we'll turn a blind eye to that. Is it fair to say that's where it started, certainly in the earlier stages of this Trump-Republican relationship? I think it's very fair to say that, yes. Uh, There was an uneasy relationship between Trump and the evangelical movement early in the 2016 race. In fact, if one looks back at it, Trump was really the last choice of many evangelicals. And when he clinched the Republican nomination for president, and it became clear that he was going to be the standard bearer in the general election against Hillary Clinton, there there was really a long process by which evangelicals had to kind of come around and, and to almost talk themselves into voting for Trump. There, there was an extensive courtship. You know, Trump was assisted by some leading evangelicals like Jerry Falwell Jr. and um, Franklin Graham, both heirs of sort of religious dynasties in the evangelical movement here in the U.S., and some others, Mike Huckabee, some prominent evangelical pastors. They helped Donald Trump make the hard sell to evangelical voters, and it was transactional in nature, as you said. Look, you might not like this individual, you might not trust him, you might not think that he is a moral man, but if you vote for him, he will give you what you want, policy-wise. He will deliver the legislative victories and the political victories that you crave. And what that has morphed into is something entirely different. You know, the transactional part is now a distant memory. What we see now is that when Trump tells voters, you know, like, I will be your revenge, I will be your retribution against the the left and against the culture, against the deep state of the government, right? That has really taken on its own 
reality with the evangelical movement because for a lot of these people, again, I can't stress this enough, they feel like Armageddon is here, that, that, that this is sort of a last stand for the Judeo-Christian America that they know and love, and that Donald Trump is the person standing athwart these enemy forces. I mean, you make it sound almost like a religious experience being part of the Trump movement, almost like a, a congregation member in a church. Uh, very much so. It is. It, 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 you know, I, I, I feel almost gross saying this, mm. but the Trump conversion experience is deeply parallel to the Christian conversion experience, which is to say that for many of these people who were once convinced that Trump was a charlatan, that he was immoral, that he was wicked, that he was certainly not one of them, this process by which they have come to see him as almost a, a messianic figure, and they have sort of pledged allegiance to him, there is a absolutely a religious fervor here. And it's it's deeply unsettling. It's not mm. only deeply unsettling as a political matter, it is deeply unsettling as a spiritual matter. Because if you are a Christian, that is, if you are someone who believes that Jesus Christ is fully man and fully God and, and came to earth to be the mediator between a broken humanity and a perfect God, if you are a follower of Jesus, then you are told that you shall have no other gods, and, and, and that idolatry is sort of the great threat to mm. our relationship with God. And what we are talking about here, Seth, let's be very clear, it is nothing less than idolatry. And so much of this is normally bound up in respect, respect for other people. And respect seems rather in short supply uh, from Donald Trump. I mean, you make it clear from the very early days. I think you, you quote from a campaign event in Iowa in 2016, where he talks about the so-called Christians backing Ted Cruz and openly describes them as real pieces of shit. Um, I mean, that's, that's a real tension for people rallying around him, that he's openly mocking them and showing his contempt for them and expressing it. And and I would say that um, the the issue here, Seth, is that I've reported other things that Trump has said uh, about the evangelical community. Uh, they've been reported elsewhere. And, you know, Donald Trump said years ago when he was campaigning in 2016, he was he was remarking on this incredible energy and, and this passion and this fervor that he was seeing among voters who supported him. And Trump said, you know, I could shoot someone in Fifth Avenue and get away with it. And what we're dealing with now, as far as his relationship with this sort of subsect of the evangelical movement, is very much what he described back then. In other words, you could have all of the evidence in the world that Trump has been disparaging Christians, that Trump has been behaving in ways that are completely antithetical to Christian virtue, that he is sort of openly exploiting and manipulating Christians for his own political gain and sort of laughing about it behind their backs or even in their faces. And it wouldn't matter. It just wouldn't matter to a lot of these people because either they would find a way to justify it and say that it's part of a four-dimensional chess game that he's playing that we can't see, or they simply wouldn't believe it. They, it just wouldn't matter to them. And so, and that's kind of the troubling thing is that we're almost dealing with a 
we're dealing with a, a different epistemological existence in some sense. I wonder, how did we get here? Because there is a great deal about the whole process of evangelicalism, which emphasizes being born again, having a moment of realization, having a turning point. What's been the turning point here for Trump supporters from, from this transactional relationship we've been talking about to total devotion to this cult-like mindset? You know, I would, I guess I would say that there's an internal and an external factor. Mm-hmm. The external factor is what I've talked about a little bit, but I'll expand on it, which is to say that, you know, over the past 10 to 15 years in American life, we have seen almost a, a cultural revolution. The United States has changed in profound ways in a very short period of time. We have had massive economic disruption, massive technological disruption with the introduction of of social media and smartphones and the like. We've had enormous cultural disruption. Uh, if, If you had told someone 15 years ago when Barack Obama was president that uh, pretty soon the entire country would have same-sex marriage legalized and that marijuana would be legalized just about everywhere and that gambling would be legalized just about everywhere and that transgender rights were sort of the cause of the day of the Democratic Party, people would have thought you'd lost your mind, right? In other words, this change has not happened incrementally. It, it has mm. happened very quickly. And, and I think as a historical fact, when you look at civilizations, uh, cultures that have had this sort of very abrupt change, it does produce inevitably a backlash. Um, Not saying that's right or wrong or otherwise, it's just sort of what it is. And so that has, that's the external part is that I I think for a lot of evangelical Christians, that sense of panic, uh, of moral panic, that this country is slipping away from them so quickly and that, that America is in its twilight. And if something isn't done immediately, then they're going to lose the country for good. That's a very real phenomenon. Mm. And then I think the, the internal, uh, look, Donald Trump in some ways has been brilliant in exploiting that sense of panic, that sense of vulnerability. And he's used his own trials and tribulations and sort of projected them onto these people. So in other words, when Trump is indicted for the first time by Alvin Bragg, the district attorney in New York, um, Trump very effectively, and I would say, you know, almost uh, quite cynically and almost in a sinister way, he uses that indictment and all of the ensuing indictments to, to, to sort of cast that upon the evangelical world and say, look, you see, they're coming for you, but first they have to come for me. And again, I just can't overstate how that under siege mentality is what informs so much of this crisis we're dealing with now. Yes. And I think... Um as an explanation for Trump's behavior, if you look at him as a politician, you won't get much of an explanation. But if you look at him as a showman, as someone steeped in show business, who knows how to entertain, who knows how to provoke, who knows how to keep an audience engaged, um, and who, who understands, I, I suspect, the, the sort of interplay between show business and religion, that, that's actually quite an interesting sort of strand to follow. Yes, it is. And, you know, I I would be remiss not to say that, you know, for for many evangelical Christians, 
they have for a long time felt like they were marginalized, like they were excluded, like they were kept at the periphery uh, of American culture. So for someone with the cultural cachet of Donald Trump, you know, the reality show and the buildings named after him and the the sort of larger than life persona, for him to come along and embrace them and bring them into the room where it happens, so to speak. I just think that there's a seductive quality to that. And mm. uh, some folks might take issue with that. They might disagree. But in their heart of hearts, I think they know it's true. Let's talk for a moment about abortion, because Trump successfully packed the Supreme Court with three new justices. That's the largest number of presidential appointments since Reagan. Um, he's been able to introduce a conservative supermajority, and that's had obvious implications in overturning Roe v. Wade. How much of a seismic shift has been this been on um, affecting evangelicals? Well, it goes back to the transactional relationship we were discussing earlier. And there's no question that if you signed up for that transactional relationship back in 2016 by voting for Trump, you do feel in some sense validated. Um, let's even think about this through the prism of the very critical evangelicals who voted for Trump but kind of felt sick about it. They can say to themselves, well, uh, I had to deal with four years of abhorrent conduct and just a, a man who was e embarrassing and awful at almost every turn and someone whom I could not possibly point to as a role model for my children or my grandchildren. But I did get this one big promise that, that he delivered on and that I've been working towards and, and, and advocating for and praying for for decades, the overturning of Roe v. Wade. So maybe in some sense, it was worth it. I think the issue, obviously, and I get into this in great detail in the book, is that abortion for many of these people is not a political issue. Abortion is a moral issue. It is an ethical issue. It is a spiritual issue because they believe that humanity, that human life is made in the image of God. And that is why it deserves protection at all stages. If you believe that, then putting all of your eggs into the political basket, so to speak, uh, is not necessarily a guarantor of success. And what we've seen, ironically, is that since the fall of Roe v. Wade, there have been more abortions in America. And the reason for that is largely because by dismantling the federal framework that had essentially kept a kind of a well-regulated state-by-state uh, -state construct of, of, of what uh, stage of a pregnancy could be terminated, you now have this kind of Wild West patchwork, and you've got a lot of states that have pursued individual referendums on the ballot where voters, including in, in conservative states, have gone to the polls and they have thrown open the gates and liberalized the abortion laws in their states in ways that would have been unthinkable just a few years ago. So the net result is almost surely going to be a, a continued uptick in mm. the overall number of abortions despite Roe v. Wade falling. And I think in some sense, that's sort of a tragic window into this transactional relationship that you could in some way 
almost sell your principles and sell your soul in, out of devotion to this individual. Not everyone did this. Not everyone sold their soul, to be clear, but some people did. And what ultimately will they have to show for it? You've been discussing the massive pace of social change that a lot of this has been responding to. And one of the themes in the book I noticed was trend towards secularization in America and the fear of secularization amongst evangelicals. I mean, that seems to come strongly through almost as a greater fear than fear of other ideologies, other creeds. Very much so. Because I think in the United States, there's always been a... An, an expression of an appreciation for religious freedom uh, among Christians, and there's an appreciation for a, a, a religious pluralism, um, which is to say that I think for many evangelicals, they're perfectly comfortable having Jewish neighbors, having Muslim neighbors, having Hindu neighbors, um, people who they view as, um, if not theologically aligned with them, then at least sort of beholden to a set of virtues and principles and beliefs that help to guide them towards common cause as a community. Um, there's always been a deep suspicion among evangelicals toward the secular world, toward the unbelieving world. And really, to take this a step further, you know, to study the history of the modern evangelical movement is to understand that there's always been this expectation of an eventual cosmic clash between the God-fearing Christians in America and the godless secular progressives in America who want to launch a frontal assault on the church and who want to eliminate Christianity from public life. And I think that that sort of mentality that so many evangelicals have been steeped in for generations, obviously it's very dangerous, but it's also something that, you know, that we've seen come to the surface, for example, during COVID-19, when churches were closing down for some period of time. And for evangelicals who had been marinating in this like end times prophecy for so long, this almost felt like the prophecy was being fulfilled. Like, okay, we've been waiting for this day and here it is. So yes, this antagonism towards and this distrust uh, of the secular world is a real pervasive thing that we're dealing with. Thank you, Tim. That was absolutely fascinating. Tim's riveting new book, The Kingdom, the Power and the Glory, American Evangelicalism in an Age of Extremism, is published this month, just in time for Christmas. And thank you for joining us, dear listeners. We'll be back soon, five days a week, every week. And if you enjoyed the podcast, remember you can support us on Patreon from just £3 a month. You'll be supporting our ever-expanding catalogue of shows, including The Bunker, Oh God, What Now?, and Paper Cuts. Thanks for listening. Until next time. The Bunker USA was written and presented by Seth Tevor. The assistant producer was Adam Wright, with audio production by me, Simon Williams. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker USA is a Podmasters production.